the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Uh, still really sunny in Seattle. I feel like I do a weather report every time we get on the show, but it was 95 degrees Fahrenheit yesterday, and I saw some poor dude in a... And it was a guy, because I chatted to him, I'm not just jumping to sexist uh, kind of assumptions there. Um, some poor dude in the clippy uh, head-to-toe outfit that you basically crawl into, where you stick your arms out the side of the, the clippy uh, character, in a in the tent, in the open heck tent in the commons, and the commons tent would have been at least 100 Fahrenheit, which means in the clippy suit, he must have been at least 110 Fahrenheit. It was insane. I feel bad for the poor person who has to wear that suit next time after he was in there sweating in it all day. <laughs> and hopefully they try clean it. Apparently you can just rent the suit like for free. You just have to like book it and you can use it for events. But I'm like, man, that guy, he was just dying in it. <sighs> That would be brutal. That would be brutal. But um, no, it was. It's been fun. We um, did all your production stuff go off all good last week. Yes, the technology worked great. <laughs> there, there's a there's a hidden message in that. In well, that some users are more prepared to share their work than others. Let's just leave it at that. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we're all used to that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Um, and maybe the technology is not their comfort zone so that get it but it's all good it's all good but interestingly i remember as i was telling you last week that uh, i was deploying a power app and power bi stuff think i was thinking to myself well that's really not developer stuff well this week it was all visio and powerpoint <laughs> so I was like, you're going, going back in the other direction <laughs> exactly so uh, that's awesome. but next week i got some time booked uh heads down coding uh um up in uh up in Redmond with uh, the Microsoft Teams team and the SharePoint team. So uh, I'll get my uh, coding fixed next week for sure. Yeah, we're looking forward to having everyone on site for that. Um, I got kind of pulled in last minute. It's like, hey, uh, it'd be really good if I came on and shared with some stuff on the graph as well. So uh, the people on site kind of are all MVPs or ISVs under NDA that we come up to share things with that, you know, we want to launch at Ignite. So it's great to get that feedback that early from a, a group of people that are opinionated and, and not afraid of uh, speaking their mind, I guess. And so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to next week as well. Exactly. And and um, the, the, we expect this, you'll be re- listening to this early next week, which would be around the 30th of July. And if so, uh, we have a plan to interview the um, someone from the identity team. And I know identity always has tons of questions. So if you've got a question mm-hmm. about identity stuff, uh, get us a tweet or email at uh, m365devpodcast at outlook.com. And we're happy to try to get answers for you if, uh, if you get them to us in time. So uh, that's always a... And yeah, we'll repeat the fact that we would like to know that we have more than one human listener and that you're not all automated bots <laughs> downloading the show. Um, so some retweets would definitely not go amiss and would make our days if you shared the uh, tweets where we're promoting each episode on, on the interwebs. We're um, we're doing pretty good, but um, it'd be still good to get some more support and just to see who's listening to us for yeah. sure. I've had two people in person tell me they've heard it, so we're more than one. Oh, that, that's good. <laughs> exactly. I um, my parents leave on Saturday. They've been here for three weeks, and um, I took them on a tour of campus. And I I do remember my first day back, uh, going into the Commons and kind of there is that energy there, and I was like, wow, you know, it's so exciting being back and kind of seeing the hustle and bustle of people walking around and just the scale of the campus but seeing my parents go there for the first time and get excited about like the connect cars that are driving around that you know have been there way longer than uber's been there and um obviously with the open hack that's been on this week there's these giant tents everywhere where people are in them uh, randomly kind of joining together as teams and hacking away uh, it it was kind of really cool to just kind of realize the scale of what goes on at Microsoft and for people that haven't been on campus if you do get the opportunity to go to Seattle you should really come and uh, come up for a tour and if you need someone to take you around I'm more than willing to do that because uh, seeing my parents faces uh, kind of made my week this week oh that's awesome that's awesome. Makes me think that maybe I'm jaded after all these visits, so I have to well, put a fresh set of eyes on it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you know, you, when you're wandering around all day long in it, it's uh, 
you know, you, you start to kind of get jaded for sure. And my mum's like, does anybody get any work done around here? They're, they're playing ping pong. What the hell? So, yeah, there, there was definitely a lot of that going on. Yeah. But um, one thing that was really cool, um, I don't know whether you've held one of these yet, but they had uh, a hardware kind of display in one of the tents um, and they had a bunch of other PMs showing off other tech too, which I can't talk about. But the, the Surface Go was there. And man, that is a nice bit of kit. Wow. Yeah, I've uh, I, I haven't I've read about it, but it would be love to see one. I have a uh, an iPad nine point seven inch Pro that when I was at Hyperfish, I was using basically as my note taking device in meetings because you know not having to have the screen up, it, it you know shows that you're engaged and just taking notes. I do. I just got a Lenovo X One Yoga, which is a super nice machine, but. It, it does flip all the way around. It has a built-in pen into the machine itself that slides and hides away a little bit like the Samsung phones do. But um, it still feels a little bit big. And just picking up that Go, I, I'm so tempted just to get one as a note-taking machine for just almost just a one-night device because I think they start at uh, $399 um, as an MSRP for the like the base level one. And I had a play with the one that had 256 gig of RAM in it. Not RAM, of hard drive <laughs> SSD in it. That would be awesome if it had that much RAM. And uh, it was super fast. I, I originally bought the Surface RT back in the day um, after having the, the uh, pilot device they gave out at the build, the first build ever. And um, the RT just never cut it. I even handed it off to my grandmother and even she was like, this is just too slow. I've gone back to my iPad. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's going to be the same reaction with a Go based on my um, plodding around in Outlook and Word and stuff in it. Uh, My wife has my old Surface RT and and on long trips, she pulls it out and just uses it for Facebook. And when she says that it's slow, I blame it on the internet instead of the device. (laughs) 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 I guess the cat's out of the bag now. She might be listener number three, so, so I'm in trouble, but we'll see. So that, that was pretty cool. And then I also got to play on uh, Forza Horizon 4 on a ginormous 4K, uh, maybe even 5K screen on the Scorpio, which means now I need to go buy the Scorpio and sell my Xbox S because, man, oh, man, oh, man, the graphics on that thing is just unreal. Um, so that was it was kind of a cool week. I did get work done, but that, that was all yesterday in the afternoon. But um, yeah, the open hack week's a little bit interesting because Microsoft encourages everyone to kind of drop their normal workday job and go take on a challenge that they want to go fix or if they want to go learn for a week um, in a team or as an individual. And um, there were some really cool projects um, being spun up that you could go around and, and check out the progress of, which is cool. Yeah, I'm excited that sometimes those open hack things end up in the Microsoft garage or whatever they call it these days. And maybe, you know, little apps that can be uh, shown to the world, usually uh, on mobile devices. So I'm hoping we get some interesting stuff out of that this, this year. There's definitely some that I really, really hope get there. And then the other thing that was cool was at the same time in parallel, they do the uh, Imagine Cup, which I think has been going for 16 years now. Um, which is for students around the world to essentially do the same thing. They work on a project. I think they have a limited amount of time to build something. And then they um, present to a, like a field of judges that are Microsoft employees and I think even external people. And it was down to three finalists um, this year. And the ones that won it uh, was actually the team smart arm team, um, which built an, uh, a smart arm that had computer vision that worked out the object it was trying to reach for and and grab and change the grip of the arm, like the robotic arm, to make it more uh, accurate at picking things up. And um, it was pretty incredible considering these guys are students because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been able to build that back then when I was a student. I was still partying too hard and, um, you know, scraping by with my computer science degree at at that point. So um, that was pretty cool to see that. Yeah, all that robot, you know, human-like robotic stuff just baffles me. I mean, to have it be so precise and so fast and adaptable is just mind-boggling to me. But good good for them. And they won. Yeah, and they won 85 grand in cash and 50 grand in an Azure grant to continue that 
on with that project, which was really cool. It's a team in Canada. So uh, the links are in the show notes if you want to go see the video of it. And uh, I was super impressed. I, I won't go through all of them, but the second one was a team from Greece called I Cry to Talk. And as a, uh, a new parent, I'd, I'd uh, throw dollars at these guys because they wrote a project that um, it helps parents to decipher the message behind a baby's crying in real time. Wow. Uh, now, as a parent, you do start to realize the difference between a poop cry and a tired cry and a food cry and a I'm just angry cry. Yes, exactly. But, um, I'm I'm really fascinated by the fact that the they've kind of used uh, physiological and um, psychological data um, to make a decision on what the baby is trying to get through to you. Um, so they those guys came second, which was really, really interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. So um, what did you see out there from the community outside of kind of Microsoft? Yeah, so the first one I, I found is a, a TechNet article, which to be honest, I didn't realize TechNet articles still existed. But um, right. Hansamali Gamaj, which is an MVP, he has an article about building a function app with the Microsoft she, Graph. It's a she. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I was impressed with the pronunciation of the name, but it is a she because me and Yina were talking about it in the uh, office uh, this week, and it's like it's so good to see more females um, kind of on the graph obviously it's a big passion of yinas so. my apologies Hans Mali. Uh, i was focused more on the article and actually when i look closely now i see a picture so i totally uh, ignored that but um this is a very lengthy how-to article that covers building a, a function app using net core that reaches out to the graph api um which i know a lot of people have have uh have talked about this before but what i thought was great is that the level of detail was was phenomenal here and and go through it including the the, the background prerequisites has a about 12 bullet points of things, including links to more information. So it's it's great as a refresher or a getting started article. And it's uh, it's really pretty slick uh, um, get, getting started. And, and the other thing I found is that, you know, a lot of times you'll see articles about like Azure Functions, for example, and it's hard to tell if that's the current state of the functions you know, service, so to speak. So, uh, so even though there have been Azure Function apps out before, this one is uh, from... Uh, um, from June of 2018, so you get a, a somewhat recent version of the service and how to use it. So that was a great uh, community effort uh, uh, using the graph, which is great. So thanks, Hans Mali, for that. Yeah, we're actually going to be reaching out to because we've been outsourcing work to vendors that, um, in some cases, don't go as detailed in that in Hans Labs. So the fact that she's gone that level of detail was incredible. And one other takeaway that's kind of we're still pondering about is the notion of in her steps to do the app registration of the Azure AD application, rather than go through the app reg portal, she actually used our quick starts off the graph website homepage to let it just do the registration in one click and then download the starter project. And then she builds the code on top of that. And I was like, it's not why we built the quick starts, but uh, it totally makes sense. Like if you just want to get going on a project, you know, has already got the SDKs all kind of booted in like the MSL one and our graph SDK, um, you're good to go. So uh, there's a few of us actually talking about uh, making that so that those quick starts are not just there just to kind of get something running F5 in three minutes, but is also could be a starter for, for you for a production grade product project as well with all the right trimmings in it. So that, that article actually caused a lot of discussion internally this week. Yeah, and that's good because you know the people who are new to development, I, I, having been around for a long time, right, you, you understand the practices, but you get exposed to developers who are either new to the programming or new to the graph, for example. And and there's no doubt that people are taking the sample applications or quick starts and putting their business logic in that application because they have pressures to get their code working and running and do their job. And if I, if I don't have to think about those things, it... Uh, so so it totally happens and so beefing those up it certainly has value but there's the fine line about how much is now too much stuff in there that's the plumbing infrastructure right. and confuses a new person yep. so i i totally understand it's a it, it's a delicate balance you have to reach and and at some point we have to expect these developers to go the extra mile to learn their craft better so um it's good that that's in there. I, I would maybe not call them quick starts, maybe call them bootstraps or something like that to help uh, distinguish them from from the simple F5 experience. But it's good to see that there's other options going on there. 
Yeah, and, and we're also thinking about taking those quick starts and having like these advanced labs where if you run the quick start, you follow this lab to build on top of it for different scenarios. So there's a bunch of stuff we're doing to try and help people kind of get started once they're um, kind of done with chucking URLs in the Graph Explorer and seeing data back and wanting to have something running on their own machine. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. And then um, Vitaly Zukov, um, who joined from here looking... Excuse me. He joined the Microsoft Developer Network in 2011 and has a bunch of medals on that site. Um, and he's contributed to the um, the sample section of the Microsoft Developer Network with a sample around the Microsoft Graph using an Angular SPAR application to interact with SharePoint Online. Um, and I hear this a lot around SPARs and talking to OneDrive and um, grabbing files and how that works with a SPAR. And uh, the sample goes into a lot of detail about how to do that and kind of the app registration aspects. And um, it's all kind of done within a Visual Studio project too. So if you're interested in that approach of a kind of a standalone SPAR with Angular, um, it's great that they've uh, that was published too. So that kind of came across my radar. It is It has been out there for a while um but it's just something that i I noticed as i was poking around this week that's excellent excellent you know and on that subject of of getting files out of out of the graph michael svensson who's a a longtime sharepoint mvp and has done uh, a lot of work in the graph i think he's been on the community calls uh, as well um published a, a post about using the graph to get a pdf preview of a file in sharepoint and so um th- this again is a little bit another sharepoint type thing but but the idea here of course is that you don't necessarily um you don't have to do typical SharePointy things if you know that there's a capability that the system has that you can leverage it's certainly worthwhile to, to do that and that and that also reminds me of a a theme at ignite i think it was last year's at ignite where the onedrive team was talking about how if you want to show a file preview you can make a simple call to the graph to the drives and point and get a preview of a file, either an image or even a word or, or office document. So that, that's a, it's a great scenario to think about that. It's, it's just a little, I like to call it, you sprinkle little polishes on your application with a little preview and you don't have to do that work yourself. And Michael's got a great uh, article here that talks about how to do that uh, from a, from a, if a SharePoint and, and a little twist about if you know the file path, how to get there. So uh, another great article by, by Michael. Yeah, as a developer, when I was a consultant, like I've often built things where I'd go save documents for a particular business processes into databases. But you know, if you're saving these things into OneDrive or a SharePoint document library, just the extra sizzle you get from doing that with versioning and kind of track changes and co-authoring if you open it in a client or even a web browser, or even as you say, like the previews and if it's a video, the streaming aspects, there's a bunch of benefits by using that as a file store than just dumping it in a, uh, in a blob in Azure or in a database structure. And so, we're seeing a lot of usage across kind of applications that the enterprise are building, but also ISVs that are snapping to kind of Microsoft 365 customers that are kind of starting to leverage that stuff, which is, is cool. And then kind of in addition to that, um, the marketing team uh, have kind of funded a bunch of projects to kind of showcase all up Microsoft 365 development. Um, and this one, the timesheeting tool, um, uses the Microsoft Graph to do that. And what's really cool is it's a real world scenario about the fact that in countries like Japan, there are actual um, local regulations that prevent employees from overworking. And so um, it's like a kind of a state based thing. And so they do time tracking and it's a little bit like what you get when you go into my analytics um, in this open source sample, but it gives an idea of um, it, not just like it automatically working out what you're t- spending your time on, but this is actually tracking your time as well and being able to put it into the system and save it back into the graph. Um, it's completely open source and they've kind of done it with a middle tier stack layer in Azure Functions as well. So um, the kind of takeaway from this is is that if you're looking to do that kind of architectural kind of three tier stack, that this is actually a really good sample to go look at to see that split. Um, so yeah, that's that links in the show notes as well. Um, it's called the, the Microsoft Graph Powered um, Template Support Work-Life Balance and Compliance. I didn't think I'd ever see the word work-life balance and compliance in the same title on a blog post, but... 
the boxing team have managed to make that happen. That's great. That's great. So I, I was running a bit long here. We have this great interview this week with um, with Vincent Beret, uh, talk, who, uh, who did some work on the community call, I believe, uh, a month or two ago. Isn't that right? <laughs> Yeah, so he jumped on a community call to actually demo some of the stuff, but um, he only had 15 minutes in the call. And so I said to him, I said, it'd be great to have actually have a conversation that's a bit deeper on kind of the learnings and what was good about it and what was bad about it and what resources he used to kind of overcome some things. And so, yeah, we spoke to him this week and I thought it was a great interview. I think I actually learned some stuff about that that I didn't wasn't aware of on the graph. Yeah, exactly. And his uh, approach around um, uh, testing items and 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 the the, the main div- driven design concepts that he talked about were, were excellent stuff so it's great great listen yeah cool well uh, have a good rest of the week Paul and um, I hope you're enjoying the show guys and uh, definitely give us your feedback on the Twitter handle and the email we mentioned in the past and uh, we'll see you next okay, week bye so uh, welcome to the show again and uh, today on Microsoft Teams meeting call we have uh, Vincent Beret and Paul Schaeferlein so thanks for joining us Vincent thank you for having me I uh, I believe you just come off vacation. Yeah, that's right. I was uh, uh, two weeks off in uh, Jordan. It was very nice seeing Petra, uh, sleeping in the desert uh, under the stars. Uh, very nice trip. That's cool. And so you're jet lagged and now on a podcast at some crazy time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying to catch up. <laughs> and uh, Paul, uh, I, I bet that our weekends weren't as extravagant as Vincent's sleeping under the stars in the desert somewhere. Well, when you get to a certain age, sleeping under the stars isn't as much fun as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need your uh, uh, the orthopedic bed and uh, heat mats. Uh, no comment. <laughs> so um, yeah, for those of you that are listening that don't know Vincent, Vincent, how would you uh, introduce yourself at a... And a meeting or a conference of tech people, how will people know about you? Yeah, usually uh, what I say is, uh, hi, I'm Vincent. Nice to meet you guys. I work as an Office 365 and uh, Azure developer at Tutulid, which is a Canadian-based consulting company. And uh, I'm also now an Office Dev MVP. I used to be SharePoint and then Office Servers and Services. Uh, It's been a couple of years now, and I'm based out of Montreal, Canada. Cool. So, um, Paul, are you the same MVP title as well? I know I did notice people were being moved around a bit. Yes. I actually moved uh, a year ago. I didn't even know the development topic existed. Yeah. And so once I discovered that, then it was easy enough to say, well, look at all my contributions. They're certainly developer-based. So, yeah, yeah. Just for those listening, I know there's been a few people going, hey, we really want an MVP badge for Microsoft Graph. And I'm just doing some homework at the minute, but from the email discussions I'm having internally, it sounds like the Microsoft Graph is under that same category of users. So if you are doing a lot of stuff with a graph, um, then there is an opportunity for me to nominate you as an MVP if you're not one already or um, get renominated into this category afterwards. But I'm just kind of getting that all locked down in terms of how... Uh, whether we can actually label people in that way of just being a Microsoft Graph developer as well, which is cool because the graph is broader than just Office right now in terms of what you can use on that for sure. And um, so, Vincent, so the two to lead dudes, I mean, the original founders of that is Richard and um, Carmel. Yeah. And so how, how big is you? How big are you guys now? Are you kind of starting to take over Canada from the Toronto <laughs> yes, uh, bases? Our goal is to uh, conquer the world. Uh, no, um, we are, I, f- I believe about 20 uh, uh, is the uh, final headcount for full-time wow, employees. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, because we also have a lot of uh, partners and contractors we work with. So uh, I don't know what are the exact numbers, but we're around 20. Most of the staff is located uh, in Canadian cities, meaning Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, and a few other towns like that. Um, We also have people in France, uh, people, I believe, in Latin America. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. And so your accent, I mean, are you originally from Montreal or <laughs> you, were you, are you a relocated uh, French person uh, to Montreal? Yeah, I think my accent can still uh, talk for me. I was originally uh, born and raised in France and I moved to Montreal six years ago now. Yeah. 
So, so is there an equivalent of the Queen's English, but for French? Like I know, like I always joke with people, I speak the Queen's English, which I speak a very mutty version of English. Is there the equivalent of France where you come to Montreal and go, this isn't real French? Yeah, of course. Like the French language has uh, is rich and has a different, uh, I would say, dialects, but people might, be, might get mad because of that. Uh, with different accents, uh, we have, even in French, you have different accents that sometimes people understand each other, sometimes they don't. And you also have a Belgium accent, Luxembourg, and of course, the Quebec accent, uh, which is uh, fairly strong. And they have a lot of different expressions that we don't use in French, so so yeah, it's been uh, lots of learning for me uh, and to integrate the culture and the expressions and so on and so forth. That's awesome. And you have the Formula One, which I still haven't made it up to, which I need to do at some point in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we also have now the uh, E Formula, which is a Formula One with uh, electric cars, so that's uh, also fun. Yeah, I was watching that the one in New York two weekends ago, and it's just weird listening to silent cars spin around the track. Like it's bad enough living in Seattle and getting like nearly murdered by silent Priuses all the time. But uh, watching a race, it just doesn't seem to have the edge uh, edge over, you know, loud screaming engines going past. But I guess it is the future. Yeah, I, I guess we have to get used to it. So um, in terms of the, the graph, uh, we, well, from my other hat with the Microsoft Graph community calls, we were fortunate enough to have you on demonstrating um, what you've been working on with a particular client. And I just thought it would be great to do that as a conversation without the demos, because I think it gives different context and insight. Um, so I, I think where we could start off based on um, those demos that you did was essentially like... From the graph aspect, what are those common scenarios that you uh, use the graph for around kind of the events and maybe describe a little bit about the business case of what you were building that required you to use the graph? Sure. Uh, so over the past year, we've been working with a customer which works in uh, the pharmaceutical industry. So we make basically uh, medications and drugs. And uh, in their case, they had this requirement of um, organizing meetings and uh, having uh, taking notes and um, also having structured uh, um, you know call to actions the speakers the agenda all those kind of things and making sure also that it was everybody was in, invited to the meeting and so on and so forth so the solution we, we built and I encourage you to uh, watch the recording of the uh, I think it was the June Microsoft graph community called if I'm not mistaken um, where I was presenting with the demos in the slide deck and everything but basically what what it does is it uh, when a user has to uh, schedule one of those meetings uh, to be more efficient and with external partners and internal uh, partners as well, um, it automatically creates for them not only a SharePoint space or well, SharePoint site for so they can um, uh, drop the documents, collaborate, or do everything you can do in SharePoint, but also it creates an exchange meeting via the Microsoft Graph to make sure everybody is aware there is a meeting and how to connect there, and also there is a SharePoint site over there, and so on and so forth but also a Skype, uh, what they call bridge, but it's actually just a Skype meeting. Uh, so everybody can join the call and, and participate to the meeting when it's time, right? And and then in that, in that ecosystem, they have uh, options like uh, timing the meeting, recording a few things, taking notes, uh, also assigning the agenda with the different presenters and so on and so forth. So that's, this is basically what the, uh, the solution uh, does. And so this solution, did you have to build a lot of this um uh, in, uh, UI yourself is are you working in it just using the out of the box interfaces? How, how how does that surface to the end user? Um, so the place where the end users interact the most with that solution is within SharePoint. Within SharePoint, we have some custom components we built that uh, show the meeting details and the, some. Um, uh, business logic uh, and business related details that, that I cannot share uh, with you right now. Um, and also it shares all the content of the meetings and so on and so forth. So most of the application sits within SharePoint. But of course, we take advantage of the uh, out of the box uh, uh, Office 365 at large capabilities. For example, when we send out an invite uh, to people to uh, for a new meeting, uh, we haven't built anything you know, for them to receive that invite, to accept or anything like that. We're 
rely on out of the box either uh, Exchange Online or Outlook uh, clients, so we can uh, you know view the invites and reply to those invites and so on and so forth. So the goal there was to uh, spend the time, the development time on the uh, uh, line of business logic and not on the out of the box capabilities that are already here within Office 365. And so for this meeting, I'm guessing then you're doing the, the find meeting call, which uh, can be quite helpful in that scenario, I presume. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So for those that, that don't know that find meeting time, uh, there is a, a specific call that we use actually in the solution. And, and I think this is one thing I'm demonstrating during the Microsoft Graph community call that allows you to say, hey, I want to meet with, uh, let's say, uh, Jeremy and, and Paul, and uh, this is going to be an hour meeting. And it's OK if we only have two thirds of the participants. Uh, can you find the the best time that works best for all three of us. And and this is the fine meeting time uh, uh, API call. And yeah, this is something we'll leverage all, uh, a lot because again, those meetings um, involve a lot of different actors that are external, internal, and and the more you have people, the more complex it is to organize a meeting that, that uh, makes everybody happy and everybody can attend to, right? So if machine learning can help uh, the user with that, we, we, we all, of course, will integrate that. Try being at Microsoft when everyone passive aggressively adds three hour blocks of focus time so they try and not have meetings at a certain point during the day. And I am I am one of those people because otherwise it gets out of control in terms of when people schedule. <laughs> but um, apparently, excuse me, the fine meeting times team, the way that works is it's actually using, um, you know, here comes the buzzwords, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, learning to work it out. So it can it returns you a collection of options for your meeting that you can then pick on. Um, but it's interesting where I've been triaging Stack Overflow and GitHub, trying to help people unblock them on if they're stuck on that API. One thing that a lot of people haven't done is obviously read the documentation around the API thoroughly because I think they expect it to work like a three busy type approach. And sometimes they're surprised by the results it returns. And again, that's because the AI and machine learning aspects of it is, um, it's using a model for each individual user to pick the best times based on its understanding of when they're, they're free for a meeting. Um, and so sometimes you don't get the results. Maybe you'd expect having test accounts with three calendars, um, you know, it doesn't always pick the earliest meeting that's available slot where you're all available. Um, and the documentation has a little bit of detail on that, but um, I'm actually trying to get the engineering team to own that API to, I guess, add a little bit more source around and information around how it makes those decisions of what's, you know, what, what it returns in its responses. D did you experience that with when you were using it? So, yeah, actually, um, uh, it was, um, it's not something we're used to, to doing, having suggestions from machine learning and so on and so forth and trust those suggestions, uh, I think, uh, as a general sense. Then in, in right. that particular context, what we uh, saw is at some point during the project, we were using the same test accounts to run the unit tests. And the unit tests were creating lots of meetings on behalf of those accounts, right? And filling up the calendars pretty quickly. Uh, so at some points, we would get during our manual test phases, uh, you know, results in 2019 or 2020 and, and saying like, Oh, this is not possible. We cannot have uh, accounts that are this busy, right? And actually, it was the case. So uh, I would suggest that first to make sure that your because it's machine learning, your data sets are clean and what you expect those to be. And uh, second, uh, provide as much data as you can and uh, um, to the API when you call it. The reason why I'm saying that is there is, for example, an option to say um, when you're looking for uh, time slots to say, okay, I want those uh, suggestions that you give me back to be within working hours, out of working hours, a mix of those, for example, that is very important. If you don't want, uh, uh, because people are really busy nowadays, if you don't want suggestions that are always out of uh, out of uh, office hours, right? Uh, it's important to provide information as well. 
Yeah, so you mentioned unit tests there, and I and obviously that's a, a wide open topic and not necessarily graph related. But did you find that um, you, you would actually stub out or, or or mock up the calls to the graph, or were you using a test uh, tenant, or, or your test accounts were just you know separate users? Can you give us a little bit more detail about how you managed to do your unit testing? Sure. Uh, so our solution sits in two main blocks. There is uh, one which is front-end development, JavaScript and, and Knockout and so on. And it's only front-end, right? And another one, which is a back-end API, which holds some of the custom logic and so on and so forth, um, and which is built in .NET. For the front-end piece, we were testing mostly the business logic, not the API calls, right? And we stubbed or mocked uh, most of the uh, uh, infrastructure services calling any any uh, HTTP endpoint and so on and so forth. So that was uh, uh, fairly easy. We used uh, uh, the most popular stack at the time, which is uh, Karma, Mocha, uh, Chai, Chai has promised, and uh, a couple of other things like that. Um, and for the backend piece of things, um, we implemented a domain-driven design uh, pattern for the API uh, uh, architecture. So. Uh, there are a lot of details for that DDD pattern, and if you don't know it, I encourage you to you know to look for it. But basically, what it states is the uh, business logic should always be isolated to the um, uh, highest point from any infrastructure concern, any technical concern. And um, what it uh, and you can see your application more like an onion, right, uh, with multiple layers, where the the middle is always the business layer. It only cares about business logic and the outer layers care more about the infrastructure or talking to the user and so on and so forth. All that to say that for our business domain uh, uh, logic uh, services, uh, we of course uh, worked on mocks and, and steps because otherwise it would be too slow to execute the, uh, the test and the unit tests. But for infrastructure services, things talking to SharePoint, things talking to Exchange, things for talking to Skype, um, we leverage um, simple unit tests that will uh, talk to uh, dedicated test tenants and, and unit test tenants, basically. Oh. And yeah, I mean that's a, that's really detailed. So uh, was that something the client had requested, or is this something you kind of do on all of your projects to ensure? You know, you've got that level in there. Um, we don't always have to build custom APIs for all our projects because we do mostly SharePoint yeah. customizations, right? So SPFX can kind of stuff. But uh, when we build an API, especially when it's so crucial, right? Because um, when you schedule meetings and you do things like that, you don't always detect that there is a defect. The defect can be detected like six months later because in production, which is even worse, because somebody scheduled a meeting six months ago, something went wrong, but you don't know about it and nobody saw it. And then when it's time to use a meeting, connect and have people interact, well, uh, something is, is, is broken. So this is why it was crucial to us to, to, to make sure that the API we built was uh, as uh, solid as possible and 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 could um, and and would work and would be properly tested. Another consideration we had at the time, at the very beginning of the project, uh, this specific customer was on Office 365 dedicated, which works a little bit different than the real uh, general Office 365. And we could have had a scenario which we didn't have where we had some users uh, on the dedicated infrastructure, which is not an on-prem infrastructure. It's, it's still hosted by Microsoft. And some other users on the um, on the uh, public general Office 365 infrastructure. And uh, implementing a DDD pattern allowed us to code different connectors only for the technical layers talking from uh, for one case to the uh, dedicated infrastructure and another case to the uh, general Office 365 infrastructure. So that abstraction is one of the reasons why we chose also that, that design pattern. Yeah, and that's the same if you're on um, like the government tenants as well. Um, there are delays on graph features getting to those things um, that aren't well, that aren't in there that are in the the normal vanilla Office 365, which is called multi-tenant. And then obviously you've got the dedicated as well. Um, out of interest, what was the stack that you used to write that uh, domain-driven layer? Uh, .NET. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> what the question is, but we, we uh, brought it in .NET, so yeah. 
And then you, is that all hosted in Azure as an app oh, service? The, the or the stack, the hosting stack. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, so yeah, we uh, all the backend is hosted on um, Azure. And we used, uh, in that case, uh, Azure uh, Web Apps and Azure Web Jobs to, to uh, run and host the processes, basically. Yeah. I think a lot of people are interested right now in like uh, people using the PaaS platform as a service stuff like app service and web apps and or are they using kind of the containerized approach for things like kubernetes especially now with some of the, the more advanced um, things that have just been announced to make it easier to host so you know is, is there any reason that you went down that web apps route was there uh, as opposed uh, like to an architectural decision yeah, as, going down the containers yeah. path like was it just because it was easier for you guys as a team to build out um i i think when you make technical choice there has to be value out of it right so in our case like the the value of containerizing uh, uh, with my understanding of containerizing application is is to have some kind of abstraction of the infrastructure or cloud provider you're running on right and generally when you want to do that is because you envision either moving from let's say azure to aws or going back on premises or having a hybrid scenario with a bunch of a bit of uh, a bit of both um, in our case um, we knew that the customer was a long-term Microsoft uh, customer and they wanted to stay in the Microsoft ecosystem and they didn't want to run anything on premises so it didn't make sense to uh, bring the um, the complexity of a containerizing uh, stack and so on and so forth into the project so uh, that doesn't mean you cannot have similar approaches in similar patterns because for example all our uh, deployments and and so on are uh, follow the same patterns in the sense that we have, for example, we use um, uh, Azure Resource Manager, you know, with files to describe the infrastructure we need and, and the different services we need on Azure and so on and so forth. And all that is packaged to deploy automatically and so on and so forth, right? Have, not having the containerizing technology didn't mean we could not have the benefits of it uh, without having the, uh, the complexity it brings. That, that's awesome. And, and I have one more question around what I'm calling infrastructure things. So if you have a client who's using a, a dedicated tenant or, or as Jeremy mentioned, sometimes you might have customers that are in a sovereign cloud infrastructure. Are you finding that there's more support work by developers around the, the different flavors of the API? And by that, I mean, you know, little releases here or releases there might be somewhat different, e even if they don't have a major version number. So I, I'm curious if you've had any experience with that or any thinking at this point about how you might handle the API changes a little bit. Now I need to rev my service much more quickly in this consultant customer environment instead of a in-house developer. Yeah, uh, yeah, we found a lot of differences, actually. I, I, I think Office 365 dedicated is going away, if I'm not mistaken. That's, that's just my, my understanding, but we'll still have scenarios with sovereign clouds and so on. Uh, in our case, um, what was confusing was the API support at the time. And I know the documentation has made some kind of progress, at least around that. But at the time, which APIs were supported, where, for how long, uh, also for the authentication. The auth authentication scenario uh, on Azure and uh, Azure AD and so on is still a bit blurry today. They made progress, but um, uh, knowing which protocols and which flows were supported in Office 365 dedicated and which were not was a bit of a um of, uh, it was a bit difficult, right? Um, so yeah, those were the main differences. Also, the when we mentioned the fine meeting time, at the time, I don't know if it has changed, but at the time, fine meeting time was not supported uh, on the uh, dedicated deployments. Um, now, I don't know if it has changed or if it's uh, if it came to the, at least to the sovereign clouds, but what that was a capability we, we were thinking about, hey, how are we going to deliver that if we, for some users, we can find and um, leverage of fine meeting time. And for some, we cannot, right? Uh, solving those kind of issues uh, brings a bit of complexity, especially when it's not always clear from a documentation standpoint. 
Uh, awesome, awesome. So now in our in our, our, our preparing for this talk, you had mentioned there's a different project that you had had regarding uh, the open extensions that are part of the the directory service. And so, can you give us an overview of what, how you're using or what scenario you're using for those extensions? Yeah. So this is a different customer, different industry, uh, different project that's still ongoing. Um, right now, it's not yet. Uh, it hasn't yet reached production. So we are planning to leverage open extensions and we already have a proof of concept for, for that. Um, because the users and, and the uh, IT uh, team uh, expressed the need of having personalized uh, links favorites on their internet portal. So we're building uh, this kind of uh, um, navigation menu based on the SharePoint framework that leverages uh, the uh, yeah the latest and greatest from the SharePoint framework. And one of the Cat links category they want to have besides corporate links that are dictated by the organization are personal links that are personal to one specific user, right? Um, here we have we would have a couple of options to to store those personal links. Um, we could perfectly store those in SharePoint, although uh, you might have some security concerns, some volumetry concerns, and so on and so forth. Um, you could store those in the for the SharePoint developers the uh, user uh, service profile uh, properties for each and every user. But that API is pretty slow. It's old. We don't know what more might Microsoft is going with uh, with that specific aspect of, of SharePoint and so on and so forth. Or the other uh, option we, we chose was to store it as an open extension um, in the Microsoft Graph um, on the user attribute. So each user would have, in fact, a quote-unquote custom property, which would be like my personal links, something like that, and which would contain the serialization of all the personal links, personalized links they, they uh, edited and created for their personal navigation menu. So yeah, this is uh, the context within uh, uh, we're planning to um, use those links. Of those, uh, you mentioned this. You mentioned the speed aspect of the user profiles, and um, I, I guess what I, the understanding is with the open extensions. That are you pulling that every time you load the UI, or are you caching that in the UI and maybe refreshing that cache over a certain amount of time, regardless of the performance of the API underneath? Because I'm assuming that a user's personalized links don't change, like. Oh, very often, yeah. yeah. And even if it changes, you can always reset the cache. Um, so yes, most of the time when we implement stuff for our customers on the front end piece, we uh, divide uh, our infrastructure services in two pieces. We have the actual infrastructure service that's in charge of talking to SharePoint API, the Graph API, other APIs uh, uh, through SDK or not. Like I'm thinking about uh, PNP, JS. Uh, uh, initiative and so on and so forth um, and we have then a uh, um, proxy or decorator design pattern that's just the cache implementation of that exact service right so think it about uh, intermediate layer layer but just pulls the data if it doesn't have anything on, on the cache, puts it in the cache, and the next time you ask it, uh, we'll retrieve it from the cache. And what I, um, uh, when I talk about cache, what I'm thinking about is things like the local storage, the session storage, and so on and so forth. So yes, we don't pull, uh, every time we navigate, we don't pull all the data from the API, uh, because that would be a, a waste of resources and time and, and, and not a great experience for uh, the user. So we cache it, but regardless, when you want to talk to the UPS, you have to, uh, if you do some advanced stuff, to bring the uh, SharePoint uh, JSON model, which is not the greatest JavaScript API uh, as of today's standards. And that's not the fastest way to query data. So we, we want to, as much as possible, uh, stay away from that to provide a great user experience to our users. And when you started extending your application now to update information about users in their this open extension did you run into uh, complicated permission issues I, i'm sure that would scare some people to say well i'm writing information to the quote directory what has your experience been in how to how to set up the permissions and make those calls work for each user 
Um, so the, the way that works now, we have it's still in preview, but we we expect that it's going to reach GA before we have to hit production with our customer. That's a, another discussion there. But um, the way that works with a SharePoint framework is you can um, declare additional permissions you need from the Microsoft Graph, so you can use it straight away. It it um, kind of makes simpler all the pipeline of the OAuth and set up the, like, registering an application, declaring the permissions, granting the permissions, and making sure that the, the flow was current, properly implemented and so on and so forth. Which, by the way, we had to do in the other project I mentioned earlier because we were not using the Shopping Farmer because it was an earlier project. So all that is greatly simplified for you. And in terms of, of permissions, uh, well, I, I, I think there is a lot of documentation around that, but my point being, when you register an application to the Microsoft Graph, you don't have, you don't give everybody and anybody access to everything and anything. You have what we call scopes or permissions that say, okay, I want to uh, read the user profile, write to the user profile within the context of the user plus the application or just the user. And uh, we'll have permissions to write or read from the user for the current users or current user of who's connected and using the application or all the users, even those that are not currently connected, right? Uh, so if you properly choose and pick the permissions you need and you apply a least privileged um, uh, approach to, to those permissions uh, and you document those and explain those properly to the customer, I, I don't think it makes everybody afraid of, of the application itself, right? And and just to be clear, like in this instance for this scenario, you're storing the extra kind of like information about the URLs they're personalizing against their user object mm -hmm. in the graph. Mm -hmm. But you can do these open extensions across any object. So with your other scenario that uh, we talked about earlier, were you storing anything on the event objects to that was extra information that wasn't just stored by default? Uh, we could have, but but keep in mind in that case that that application also had uh, SharePoint supporting it, right? And every time we were creating right. a meeting, we also had a full SharePoint site with. Uh, okay, so the, you're storing the property yeah, stuff. Yeah, there. properties, the uh, documents, the. Uh, uh, all, all of our things related to the uh, line of business uh, uh, logic and so on and so forth. So we chose to store it here uh, because it also provides, in that, in that case, it made sense because the open extensions, unless you build your UI to edit those, for example, like we're doing for the links, um, the, the users don't have a way to to uh, to uh, edit those, right? Uh, unless they know how to craft uh, a REST request, but that's a different, uh, different discussion. Um, the benefit of storing stuff in SharePoint was, well, SharePoint has an out-of-the-box UI to provide a great editing uh, um, UI and capabilities, and we wanted to leverage that because that was uh, business information that the user uh, needed to access uh, to and see and edit potentially and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and, and then the other aspects of this, other than being able to store these extensions on other objects in the graph, is when you store these objects, they're visible by everyone. They're not just accessible by your application that created them. So... I mean, in your case with personalized URLs, there's probably not so much of a concern of another application seeing these extensions when they pull the user object down. But um, I guess if you're doing more advanced scenarios where you're capturing information around a specific, maybe highly sensitive business app, it might not be the best place to store this stuff. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, yeah, yeah, and the, and the pattern I've seen, sorry to cut you off there, but it is is perhaps what you store in in the extension is the primary key to your backend database that stores that information securely, meeting your requirements. Yeah. And and one more scenario that I've seen, I know this doesn't fit what Vincent's talking about, is that if I have information that's relevant to my custom app as well as you know relevant to something inside the the uh, Office 365 service, having something stored at the user level lets me access that data and give the user a consistent experience. I can have a, a SharePoint web part read that data. I can have my custom app read that data uh -huh. or an add-in in Outlook read that data. So it does kind of give some so the portability, if you will, to that data, which can be helpful too. Yeah, so some of the larger demos that we do at Keynotes are starting to use that to kind of roam between when we demo something on a mobile device versus what's in SharePoint versus what's in a Power App, where it's all calling from that same extension point. It's a, a very neat way to immediately get like either 
additional personalization on an object in the graph, not necessarily just have to be users, but it can be events or tasks. So essentially any of the object reference objects that you can have inside of the graph can have these open extensions. On the, um, the uh, hint there of not knowing that when this is GA'd, uh, I am week eight in and last week I got my first kind of roadmap question. I was like, sure, I'll reach out to that particular engineering team and get back to you. I won't tell you what the feature is or the engineering team I was talking to, but the back channel was kind of blank stares of um, we're not quite sure what's happening with this yet, uh, what time it's being in GA. And usually with a lot of our features that are in preview, if they're previewed at one event, the next event, in six months is likely when they're going to GA. Uh, it's not always the case with the graph, um, but we have build and we have ignite that kind of are in that six month windows between each. Um, so, you know, if you're looking to see what's coming, the best way to do it is to see what gets announced at those two events. There are definitely things that happen out of those bands. Um, and a lot of it's just, you know, if it's ready, sometimes it's just better to put it out there rather than park it, sit on it for a major event. Uh, kind of announcement but also you know sometimes getting out there uh, and then announcing it at the event a lot of people aren't paying that much attention to it so it still gets a lot of attention when we do do an announcement regardless of the fact that it was actually released a month before um, but it is part of something I'm working on is how we can have a better line of sight into the changes on the graph and there was a really good <coughs> excuse me a really good Twitter feed on that this week or Twitter discussion on open API, which we're working on at the moment as a uh, kind of a big team and how we can do kind of differences is on the beta versus V1 endpoint and when changes occur in each so that developers can kind of subscribe to those updates. So that, that'll be something we're working on for sure. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help a lot uh, as developers on the field to know what we can use, what's, what we can't use, and so on. One, one thing I like very much from Azure is uh, the fact that for each and every service, they tell you, uh, is it GA or not? Uh, is it GA in which regions? Are they deploying to whatever regions? And that's straight up from the Azure portal. So um, <laughs> that would be probably a great takeaway for the graph team to do something similar if we, if you, if we could. Yeah, and that, that scenario is going to get more complex as we add what we call internally more workloads on. You know, when this whole first started it out, when I was at Microsoft before as in the marketing team, it was really very much Outlook, SharePoint OneDrive um, for mail, calendar, contacts and files. But, you know, I can have things in my Windows timeline now through the notifications endpoint and uh, manage my device management across my entire company through the insuring workloads and you know there's some really cool new workloads that are coming on the graph so yeah it's noted something that's on my list of things to do for sure so um Vincent how's the best way for people to keep in touch we'll definitely put in the show notes the link to the community call and to your blog and so forth but um are you active on twitter do you blog much or are you too busy coding (laughs) I, I used to blog a lot, but I, I got too busy uh, on GitHub and Stack Overflow. I think the, the best way to reach out to me is, of course, Twitter. Um, I'm monitoring Twitter and I tweet and so on and so forth. I'm also on Stack. I'm also on GitHub. Um, there is my blog, of course. And yeah, I'll, I'll provide all the links and, and, the, uh, and, and the names to you so you can add it later. What's your Twitter handle, just for those that maybe don't go to the show notes, but just want to ha- add it? Yeah, um, my Twitter handle is a bit weird, but it's uh, by wet. It's uh, B-A-Y-W-E-T. Okay, and uh, the reason I asked you that, this was a loaded question. Why by wet? Oh, that was way back when I was in high school, uh, when I was in English classes. <laughs> um, my English teacher would pronounce my family name with a lot of enthusiasm. And so she would say, instead of saying Mr. Bire, she would say Mr. Byret, like that. And that kind of stuck, and I kept that thing. <laughs> The fact that you created your Twitter handle when you're in high school makes me feel old, but I'm sure it makes Paul feel even older. <laughs> I was just thinking I'm glad social media wasn't around when I was young and oh, not so wise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I uh, I mean, you see adults make mistakes of posting stupid crap on social, but being a high school student, man, that must be hard not to... Uh, post things that shouldn't definitely shouldn't be posted on social media or you have to do a good job at deleting those afterwards when you grow older as well 
Yeah, it turns out that's biting a lot of politicians in the butt right now. So, yeah. yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, okay. Well, look, um, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we'll definitely reach out to you once you've done the open extension stuff, and maybe jump you back on in a few months or uh, later in the line uh, uh, to find out what kind of things you learned from that moving that into production. Um, so yeah, I appreciate all your time here. Sorry, Paul, I stepped on one of your questions. No, I was just going to say thanks again. It's a, it's great to get someone who's down in the, in the trenches a lo- all day, every day to, to pop up and give us some feedback. I think that's very helpful. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Yeah, and hopefully the jet lag doesn't take too long to get back into normal normal work, work life balance. <laughs> almost there, almost there. <laughs> cool. Thanks very much, Have guys. Have a good day. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at m365devpodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. Bye.